0: Welcome to Episode 6 of the Leader of Learning Podcast. In this episode, we will discuss leading from the heart. Thank you so much for joining me again in this episode. I am extremely excited to present this episode to you. So far, in the first five episodes of this young show, uh, I keep talking about transformational leadership and how leadership in general can be practiced and preached regardless of people's roles or titles or responsibilities. Anyone can be a leader. Transformational leadership really means that you as a leader find ways to inspire people to follow you and buy into a shared vision or mission by tapping into those people's individuals, strengths, talents, abilities, and their own vision and mission. One of the best ways to do that is to help change people's minds or mindsets by connecting to first their emotions, or in other words, their heart. And my guest today is an expert in this area Mark Crowley spent over 20 years in the world of financial services. Twice he held national level responsibilities, most recently as senior vice president, national manager for investment product sales at one of America's largest financial institutions, uh, even being named leader of the year. His research led to the publication of his first book, Lead from the Heart, which was published in 2011, and the reason why I'm so excited to bring in this guest is because I loved reading that book, and it was such an inspiration to me to realize how to connect with other people through their heart. What I took out of the book the most was that there's a difference between changing people's minds and changing people's hearts. So I was excited to discuss this with Mark, and I welcome him now to the show.
1: Thank you, Dan. My advisor, my honor.
0: I've already kind of given you a bit of an introduction for the listeners, but uh, I know you'd be able to do a a much better job at it than I can. So, please, for our listeners' sake, uh, if you could introduce yourself, your background, and of course, your book.
1: Okay, that's you know it'll take up twenty minutes. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the short answer would be that I spent you know over twenty years in financial services in uh, some pretty big roles, national level positions for one of the largest financial institutions in the country. And at the sort of uh, culmination of that organization being sold to another organization, I kind of was repelled by the whole leadership of the company that had just bought us and made the decision that I was just going to go out and, and fulfill sort of a wish list, a bucket list dream of mine, which was to write a book. And the intention of the book Ann, was really to convey certain leadership practices that through the course of my working in one of the most doggy dog kind of worlds there are, um, that were, you know, uh, unlike most people that I was you know peers with or people that anywhere in our organizations, anywhere in that industry. People just weren't leading the way I was leading. and I thought, well, I'm just going to express these things, and if you do these in combination that they're going to translate into some remarkable performance for people. But there is a little piece in the book, the preface of the book that really describes my upbringing, which sort of had this massive influence on how I would go on to lead people. So it was a very destructive, psychologically abusive environment that I grew up with. I'll just leave it at that. But it influenced me to really care about people and to really support people to, make sure that, you know, I'll even use the word nurtured, which, you know, sets off all sorts of alarms for people. But what I found was that the more that I did for people, the more that I supported them, taught them, gave them a view of how they could, you know, progress in their careers, made them feel safe, made them feel appreciated, those kinds of things, that people would be massively motivated to scale mountains for me. And so As I started to write the book, my intention really was just to outlay or outline rather these practices. But a friend of mine said to me, goes, you're going to have to explain why they work. Otherwise, people are going to think you just need a shitty childhood to lead this way. Mm -hmm. That sounds funny now, but it was a complete shift for me because I had not given any thought to that. I thought people would just take me at my word. And I mentioned him because he really shifted me in a way that changed my life and changed the direction of the book. By going out and looking for evidence to support the fact that we have been leading incorrectly for over 100 years, our our methods are destructive to people and inherently to their motivation, to their engagement, to their satisfaction, ultimately to their productivity and creativity, that it really comes down to the heart. And so what I've learned is that the heart is a feeling-sensing or, organ and that feelings and emotions really drive human behavior.
0: So I, I love that you said that. And of course, obviously, that's the, the topic of your book. And I, and I will get back to that heart piece in a minute. Um, but you mentioned about, and, and by the way, I, I, I'm sorry to hear about your upbringing, uh, but I'm, I'm glad it you know, became a source of, of inspiration for you, your work, and, and um, your book, of course, so back to uh, what you mentioned about kind of leaving um, your work or your organization because of the leadership style that obviously you didn't agree with and, and really didn't resonate with you. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because in your bio on Amazon.com, I looked it up. It says uh, you decided to leave the financial services world and attempt to answer the question: What happens inside of people to make them so committed to doing extraordinary work? And I, I know that that answer will will probably take you uh, way beyond 20 minutes, but what kind of answers to that question have you found that you can summarize kind of a little briefly for us?
1: We have traditionally believed, and when I say traditionally, really, you know, our traditional theory of leadership says pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, and then that's going to drive the greatest amount of productivity. It's predicated on the idea that I, as your manager, can make you be more productive than you would ever be on your own, and this is how we've believed it. You know, that people are lazy, they're going to take advantage of you, they're not going to work unless you ride them created an environment of fear. All of those kinds of things is what we've traditionally done in the belief that it works really, really well for shareholders, for owners, and for the manager or leader that's running the team. And all of that is awful. All of that isn't just awful in a moral sense. It's awful in the sense that it doesn't work. It really it creates, it shuts people down. And so I guess the answer for your question is that my my major takeaway is is something I mentioned a second ago, is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. So if we create people, if we give people negative emotions, it does all sorts of things to people's human motivation. It it actually undermines their ability to perform. And when you give people positive emotions, when you give them a steady diet, through all the things that I mentioned a second ago, you actually create optimal human performance. You put people into an environment, their physicality, if you will, that allows them to perform at extraordinary levels. So we think about squeezing, about taking advantage of people as much as we can, exploiting people, letting them go if we need to, all those kinds of things. And if we just look at it from the other perspective and said. What if we were more generous with people? What if we put people first and made them the priority and then asked them to deliver? What I found is that people will routinely do remarkable work for you, will be incredibly loyal, engaged, and productive when they feel safe and supported and nurtured and cared for. And all of this sounds really soft, except that, you know, my last position, I managed 2,000 stockbrokers. And the people that, you know, I came in, took over this role, and the people that were working for me said, oh, you know, you're approach to management that may have worked where you came from, but that's not going to work here. And we set record revenue, record profit. And I was named leader of the year in my first year of managing that group. So it's it's universal is really the point.
0: You know, I, I, uh, I, I, feel as though, uh, in, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm guessing you'd agree that that this is kind of the way that leadership is trending overall anyway, whether it be in the business world or education, which I'll get to in a, in a couple of minutes. But um, I actually just recently as a big sports fan, uh, have been hearing conversations about this when it comes to uh, coaches and, and managers in, in baseball. Because uh, right around now, you know, in the fall after the regular season and during the postseason, teams are looking for new managers. And that manager's leadership style needs to fit the team and needs to be able to handle personalities in the clubhouse. And um, I guess I'm just wondering like, if you would agree that, that that's an important aspect of, of any organization, regardless of what field you're in.
1: Yeah. I mean, i put it this way. We love heart in sports. We want our players playing with heart. We want our coaches coaching with heart. And if we don't see that, we think there's something wrong right? We really demand that. And you see the collegiality of the players and, you know, even the Chicago Cubs creating a circular locker room in order to, you know, sort of stimulate people to run into each other and have conversations and build this cooperation and collaboration. And then we go into business and we put people in charge of managing teams who just do the opposite things. They create fear they, you know, they pit one person against another. They're, they're threatened by the success of their people. If you take one of the top coaches in any sport, they're not going to throw themselves into the game at the last minute. You know, if the team's not doing well, they're not going to take the quarterback out and the coach gets in. The coach's job is to help the quarterback and all the other players thrive and succeed. That's the model we need to adapt in business. But we resist it because oftentimes the person who we pick is really threatened by the people that they're supposed to be managing. It's like, well, Dan, if, if I coach you, you might take my job. Or Dan, if I if I teach you what I know and have mastered, well, you know, you might get more recognition, or you might get a bigger bonus. Or all of a sudden, people are paying attention to Dan and they're not paying attention to Mark. Um. I look- And I say, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to teach you any of these things because I'm threatened
0: by you. I'm glad you bring this up. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm glad you brought that up though. Um, One of the big takeaways that I got from reading your book was actually this, this piece that you're mentioning right now. And uh, in any field, but even in my field of education, um, I think one of what you mentioned in your book really makes sense, which is if you have someone or, or a bunch of people, hopefully, who have... Uh, lofty expectations or ambitions of their own, and you tap into that, you're going to get much more productivity uh, than maybe, like you said, feeling threatened by them or just not harnessing and leveraging their expectations, their goals and their ambitions and just ignoring them. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, Here's what I wanted to get at with your point about leading from the heart. And Uh, I preface this by saying I'm not uh, disagreeing with you because, of course, I, I, I mentioned I'm a big fan of the book, but I am also a big fan of growth mindset. And so I found a quote in your book to be rather interesting. I'll read it. It says, it's the heart and not the mind that drives human achievement. Gestures that positively affect the heart naturally and reflexively inspire people to perform. So I guess I, I wanted to challenge you a little bit and, and uh, maybe answer the question, why the heart and not the mind?
1: Well, you know, I think in business, well, all the appeals that we make are to the mind. We tell employees, you know, if you make this change, our shareholders are going to be happy or we're going to be able to drive our market share up. And really what it comes down to is what motivates people is how they feel about the environment they're in what are they getting in return for this? And it's not just pay. So do they feel safe? You know, is there, is there a vulnerability that tomorrow there could be layoffs and that, you know, the company makes those kinds of decisions whenever they get into trouble or is there a leadership that says, no, you matter and so much to me, we're going to ride this thing out together. Is there a boss that is an advocate or do they feel threatened by that boss? Do they feel like, you know, one false move and I'm in trouble with the boss and so really what it comes down to is that, it, as I, I stressed this again, how we are made to feel by our bosses, whether we feel supported, whether we feel that we're growing, which is a huge component of this, um, whether I feel like I have a good relationship. I've, I've always said that engagement is made, the decision whether you make, whether or not you're engaged is made on Friday night you know, you're driving home after a hard week, you're exhausted, and you start thinking, does my boss care about me? Does this organization even know what I do? Does my work matter? Does anybody appreciate me? Am I growing? Am I contributing anything meaningful here? All of those are feelings. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not people are consciously thinking those things through, they're feeling those things through, which ultimately translates into, I, I think, a binary decision, which is, I'm happy here or I'm not happy here. I'm engaged here or I'm not engaged here. I want to stay here long term. I don't want to stay here long term. I want to really contribute at my highest level, do everything I possibly do, or you know what? I really don't care. Those are all three decisions. Uh,
0: just out of sheer curiosity, if if I were to ask you, let's say, a chicken or egg kind of question, would you agree then that uh, you have to tap into someone's heart before you can go ahead and try and change their mindset?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, in other words, if I feel like you're really helping me and you really are motivated to see me grow and develop and become more, and you give me critical feedback, you know, Mark, you should be able to do this a little bit better. I'd like to see you work on this. Maybe read a book, take a class, you know, men, be mentored by someone. That that sounds like a threat to some people if they're feeling like the boss isn't really looking out for them. It's like, well, he's telling me that because he's trying to get rid of me or he's telling me that because he doesn't want to give me a bonus or he doesn't want to give me a raise or All those kinds of things. People go into sort of these fantasies because they're not feeling really safe. So the the easier transition, obviously, is just to give people the feelings that will make them trust you. That's the heart. And once that happens, then it's like, go ahead. Tell me whatever I need to do to fix it because I know you're my advocate. I know you're my coach you know, players in sports bring up your experience again. When a coach comes out and says, you know, let's go out and want to work on, you know, how you've been throwing the ball and I go, well, why are you trying to do that? You know, what are you trying you know, they don't, they're not threatened by it because they know that their coach is there to help them become better. That's the mentality we need to bring into business. We need to bring that into education too. Yeah. It's and all and about bl- metrics, you know?
0: Right. And, and you brought up education. I'll ask you that in a second, but I, I just, Wanted to mention that one of the things I caught from uh, that that answer that you just gave was that that powerful T word trust, right? It's it's about appealing to someone's emotions through their heart so that they can trust you to then uh, get inspired to want to change or want to produce better and and if that's in business, uh, better sales or or better productivity. If it's in education, it's better instructing so that you can make your students grow and achieve even more than they've ever been capable of, and so. I did want to ask you about education. Actually, when I reached out to you and you agreed to be a guest on my show, you mentioned even that maybe the field of education has embraced your book and your work, maybe perhaps before even the business world or or other facets of, of leadership. I, I, I explain that a little bit. How has that been?
1: So it happened. It's happened in a couple of different ways. Dan, the first is is that there are now four different universities, and there have been five universities that have taught this book. And so um, one of them is uh, actually a PhD organizational leadership um, degree PhD program for educators. So this is your doctorate of education, but it's or or you know. It basically focused on organizational leadership, and they have embraced this. And they've embraced it so much that you know I, I speak to them, I go out and meet with them, I do podcasts for them. You know, I, they want me to be a part of it because I think they see the future. Is that we can't create environments where teachers are going home angry, teachers are going home stressed, teachers are going home feeling like, you know, if they can't move the needle on whatever score is important, that, you know, that, that they're somehow going to be judged really harshly. So we've taken that whole element of safety out of it. But more importantly, I think that they understand that connecting with students and motivating students to, to excel has more to do with, again, how we make them feel. And, you know, the simple thing is, simple test for this is just think back on the best teacher you ever had in your life or the best teachers you've ever had in your life. What's the common denominator? They cared about you.
0: Right. They, yeah, sure. The, the relationship that was built up. Exactly.
1: Yeah. They wanted to, they saw your potential. They wanted to draw it out. They were willing to invest their time in you. They didn't treat you, you know, different. They, didn't, they treated you uniquely to you and what you needed. All of that makes you feel wonderful about those people so that five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years later, you look back and you think, who are the people that made the difference in my life and from a teaching standpoint? You never forget them because they're rare. And we need to make more of those kinds of teachers. And more importantly, we need to recognizing the kind of work that you do, we need to make more principles that way. Mm. So if they're the ones who are caring about their teachers and helping them grow and become more and feel safe and um, feel recognized for the work and know that their work matters in the face of, you know, criticism from parents who are self-serving or self-focused, you know, to keep the, the teachers in their game and just doing what they do best you're going to have fantastic teachers. You're going to have more people wanting to work at that school because why wouldn't you want to work for a principal like that?
0: Right. Well, so then. someone who really invests, I, I love, I love that word that you used a minute ago, invests in you and and your performance and, and in uh, terms of what's happening in schools, the performance of your students as well. Uh, one more question about education because really Uh, I market this this podcast as not only uh, educational leadership and transformational leadership, but essentially leadership that can happen regardless of people's positions or titles. So, you know, whereas I'm not a a school administrator, I still certainly consider myself a leader. So I guess my question is, when you think about schools, how can educators step up and lead from the heart if uh, even if they're not in so-called leadership positions?
1: Well, I think that is a huge leadership position, right? You're spending a whole year with somebody who's going to influence you for the rest of your life. I'm meaning teacher to student, right? And many students, 30 Yeah. So,
0: so teacher leadership, right? That's
1: a leader, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's fundamentally a leader. And I, I think uh, the way the best way to answer this question is to tell you that very few people that I ever worked for in my entire career manage people the way that I managed, I mean, managed me the way I manage people. So. You don't have to wait, nor should you wait, for somebody to come along and recognize the truth of what we're talking about here to say, okay, now that I'm being led this way, I'm going to lead this way. Just do it on your own because it's right. Mm-hmm. Do it because it's effective. Do it because it makes a huge difference. Do it because it's the most fulfilling thing you'll ever do as a teacher because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's not for pay that these people go into work in education. It's because they want to give, they want to contribute, they want to make a difference, they want people to grow and to learn and to know that they had that impact, and that's all heart. And we shouldn't be taking it out. And in my school district in San Diego, the, the, there was a gentleman that came in, and he was all head, all mind. He was a former, you know, a, a district attorney or a U.S. attorney, and it was all confrontational, and he did everything the opposite of what we're talking about. Undermine the safety and security, and, and it never really expressed belief in teachers. Like, I hired you. I know you have the ability. You can do fantastic work. This is the kind of stuff that we need to be doing for teachers. We need to really nurture and support teachers instead of, you know, it's like one more test score if you don't get it right you're because it's not all about tests.
0: I was just going to say, you know, I think it, it has uh, become difficult in the world of education when you think of the accountability and the uh, the testing, like you said, but just the the pressure that gets put on the classroom teacher all the way up to the building and district leaders. Uh, To perform and then to either maintain or improve the performance each and and every single year. Um, I I really appreciate your thoughts on, on how to lead in education, even though that's not necessarily your, uh, your background. Before we go, is there anything else that maybe uh, we have, I haven't asked you or, or you wanted to mention that you haven't gotten to?
1: Just to pin that down a little bit, that you know that the, there is a very close similarity between business and education, at least how education's evolved today, which is that it's metrics-driven. Which is my my language, mind 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 mind. Right? It's the how. What do the numbers look like? Are the numbers getting any better? How are they breaking down relative to other schools? So it's competition. That's business. That's how we do it. And I'm not saying you, you can eliminate that. You know, we, we still need to have some evidence that the schools are progressing that people are being taught well. But if it's all mine and you're not focusing on the heart component, you can't expect those numbers to get better. That's the paradox. So the more you care about teachers, the more you care about employees. The more you care about um, growing them and making sure that you know that, that those teachers understand that, that they have an important job to do, and that the person that they report to cares about them, values them, believes in them, expresses that to them, recognizes them for the work that they're doing, you're going to create this positive flow of emotions in those teachers where they can then thrive. They're going to be much more comfortable and confident in what they're doing with students. They're going to make students feel much more relaxed. Students learn better in that scenario. And voila, scores go up if all you do is go, we need the scores up, need the scores up, need the scores up, that doesn't have any impact. It doesn't have any impact in business. It just puts people into fear and fear shuts people down. So the parallel between the two, it's very, very close. Yeah. It's it's really
0: interesting. You know, I think, uh, I think I'm realizing that more and more all the time. And, and while uh, for a long time in early on in my career where I didn't necessarily want to see schools run like businesses, I do agree that there are parallels there in terms of, um, you know, leading and managing people and and the performance aspect. You still want your students and your schools to perform well. And it's not just about those those standard measures or traditional measures, um, but it's more about how we're reaching students and how we're preparing them for life beyond uh, the school that they're in, whether that's secondary education, higher education, or, or maybe, you know, career, um, but about tapping into them as as people and then as future citizens. Uh, before we go, please, if you could, for the listener's sake, uh, tell everybody how they can find you, your work, and, and uh, reach out to you if need be.
1: I guess the easiest thing, Dan, just to say everything you can find me on uh, is everything, everything you need is on my website. So if you want to link in with me, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Um, all of the articles that I've published, I've published 25 different articles for fast company and several on LinkedIn um, that have been very, very successful. And I think very informative. So um, anybody's looking for, you know, for more insight around leading from the heart, even the book is there too. Um, but uh, everything is there, markccrowley.com.
0: All right, excellent. Mark, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me as a guest and and allowing me the the time to ask you a few questions here. Again, I'm a a huge fan of the book and uh, I really appreciate your, your work. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. I really appreciate it.
0: So thanks again to Mark Crowley for coming on and sharing with us his thoughts, his ideas, and of course his work. Again, the book is Lead from the Heart. His website is markccrowley.com. For more information, look in my show notes for this episode. Uh, as always, you can find us at leaderoflearning.com slash podcast. For this episode specifically, leaderoflearning.com slash episode 6. For everything Leader of Learning, the blog, the podcast, and more, it's leaderoflearning.com. And to reach out on Twitter at dkriness, D-K-R-E-I-N-E-S-S, and email is dan at leaderoflearning.com. You can, of course, listen to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere where podcasts can be found. As always, go ahead and subscribe. Subscribing to the podcast will allow you to be updated every time new episodes are released. And as always, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate you listening. Please reach out. Feedback is always welcome. Remember, no matter what position you're in or what title you have, you can always lead from the heart.